Hello and welcome to our latest podcast. My name is Robert Quigley and in this episode we focus upon the connection between gambling and sport and in particular football. For this episode I am joined by Jamie Wells from Fast Forward's Gambling Education Hub and Steph Shilton. Steph is married to legendary goalkeeper Peter Shilton who over the course of three decades played for a variety of teams including Leicester City, Nottingham Forest and Southampton. He also holds the record for being the most capped England player with 125 appearances for the national side. In this podcast we speak to Steph and get her very personal story of how she supported Peter through difficult and dark times but how their experiences are now being used to help offer support to others including through Steph's work with Gordon Moody. As you would expect Listener discretion is advised, as we will talk about some potentially triggering topics around the theme of gambling. If you're worried about your own gambling, or the gambling of someone close to you, there is support out there. The first step is to reach out. Signposting information can be found in the episode description. Make sure that you step away or pause the podcast if you need time. Hi, Steph. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to the autumn and the winter coming on. It's time to cozy up. So, yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Hi, Jamie. How are you in Edinburgh today? What's the weather like with you? Um, Typical Edinburgh weather. uh, Let's say (laughs) grey. Fantastic. Thank you both. Okay. well, without any further ado, um, these podcasts really are all about your story uh, and in this case Steph it's yours and Peter's story so um happy to hand the, the microphone over to you what might be quite good for the listeners even just at the start is to maybe to set the scene by talking about um Peter's sort of background in football maybe even some of the clubs that he's played for just to give a a flavor of you know just who this let's be honest English icon legend really is um and then I guess for the focus of today, just how gambling has impacted upon, you know, yours and and his life. So over to you, Steph, um, and really grateful to you for letting us join today. Oh, thank you so much. It, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be invited on. Thank you. Um, and as I said to you earlier, I went through some of the briefs on today's interview um, with Peter last night. and He was in hysterics. Um, because obviously he knew that you were going to ask me about football and he was like, oh my God, this is going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> um, because the first football I ever went to, match I ever went to watch was with Peter and watching England play. And I was in the front row of the Royal Box and he had to whisper in my ear which end England had to score in. And David Gill was next to the other side of me and I said to him, Oh, are you um are you a footballer? Was you a footballer? Um and and Peter said it was just wonderful and, and I sat next to the great Sir Bobby um Charlton who's sadly just passed away this week and he said to me, What do you think of the game so far? And I went, Please don't ask me about football, Bobby. I said, I thought Peter was a musician when I met him. We met in the lift and I thought he was a musician. 
And I said, I don't know anything about it. And he just said to me, oh, how refreshing. What can we talk about? And we just really hit it off. And his wife was just lovely. They welcomed me into the fold. Um, and Peter always allowed me to be myself. So I don't know a lot. But he did say a message last night, just that I could say, is that he always enjoyed playing Scotland. And he had his best ever save against Scotland. Um, and he said the Scottish fans, he was trying to educate me which, about football, which is never great. And he said that the, the Scottish fans, he said, are amazing. They're very loyal and very passionate. So that's, that's my knowledge, I'm afraid. Well, please say thank you to Peter for a great plug for the, the podcast, because the Scottish listeners will have just um, remained in there um, listening to it rather than switching it off if you'd given a, a negative Scottish comment there. So that's brilliant for... <laughs> But no, it's, I mean, I think, you know, it is important to set the scene that, that Peter is, um, you know, an English legend, English icon. And there's very few people who, you know, even have a passing interest in football who haven't heard of, of the great Peter Shilton. So, um, you know, and I think it is quite refreshing. Just I suppose it's typical of, um, uh, you know, relationships that, you know, we are perhaps in awe of of him, whereas for you, you know, He's your husband and he's someone that you, you know, you spend every day with. So, you know, it's obviously less of a um, a footballing thing and more just of, of Peter the man. I think it's because I didn't I didn't know I didn't lo- I didn't like football. So I never I never followed it. And I've always been um, highly committed to a career and I've got a, a beautiful daughter. And when I met him, she just had my first granddaughter which was so special so you know I, I I didn't have a clue who he was we were crammed together in this lift and and I just said to him oh because I'm a semi-pro jazz and blues singer and I just said oh you I was singing that night I said oh are you coming to the jazz convention and he said no I'm speaking so I said what about and he said football and I went oh how dull and I thought oh he's just taking who talks about football who gets dressed up in you know in tux and talks about football and who would listen to that I thought he was joking so he said it was just from the beginning you know it was just this complete innocence um about football and then I remember cooking a really special meal and um, for a little bit further on in the relationship and thought I better start showing some interest in this really boring subject of football so I said to him <laughs> so did you win the world cup at all <laughs> Because when I met him 12 years ago, we didn't have iPhones or, and I worked in the NHS working nearly 70 hours a week and it was prohibited. We couldn't use the internet for personal use. So, um, no, Steph, we didn't. Um, I think you've just lost most of the England supporters who are listening to this podcast now. <laughs> I'm only know, joking. But do, yeah, but they do know that I am loyal. So I do go and watch England play and I do. I do know the offside rule now, so my my education has come a lot further along. <laughs> well, I think we've probably quizzed you enough on football. I think um, we, you've done admirably well. I would say nine out of ten for your your footballing knowledge. So so well done for that. <laughs> so I guess in terms of the the, the st- story today, um, I suppose my my first question would be more: When did you, or perhaps when did Peter realise that you know that gambling had become 
you know, a bigger part of, of your lives. How does that kind of story play out? Oh, it's difficult because he because Peter was in complete denial until the day he quits, which is is very common with a lot of gamblers. And what's so sad about it? He said he felt that he knew he had a problem, but he, he was in denial and, and we didn't know about, uh, you know, gambling addiction and, and I had no knowledge of that. I'd worked in the NHS as a senior manager and I, I had seen um, alcohol addiction and I had also seen drug addiction. Um, so I'd sort of seen that side of it, but I've never encountered gambling addiction. Um, and, and he hid it because it is a hidden addiction. It's a silent addiction. You wouldn't be able to identify to me who's a gambling addict, but you was an alcoholic or you know, someone that's addicted to drugs. So obviously in the beginning, it was very much a, a cat and mouse game. But I felt like it, there was an affair. I felt like there was a, um, a third party in the relationship. So I started to get those signals when I first met him. You know, he'd keep going out on his phone and this secretive behaviour, which was starting to make me concerned about this new relationship. So I one day asked if I could borrow his phone and said, like, oh, my battery's gone down. And he reluctantly gave me his phone. And I quickly could see this, this number that he'd obviously been ringing lots. And I wrote it down because he'd go out the room, room out, um, or go out in the garden and be on the phone and then I rang it up on my way to work the following day and it was a, gam- a betting company so I just thought oh this man he's so lovely you know he's, he's just he likes a bet you know so he's keeping that from me because obviously we really fell madly in love very quickly and so I thought I'd bring it up so we went out for lunch on the Saturday and I said to him you know do you do you like a bet I said like I don't know anything about football but I have used to go to the races um for a family day out you know to the members enclosure at Newmarket not all the time you know maybe every two or three years something my mother organized and I said you you know it's great so I said so if that's and he said yeah it's how I unwind it's a bit of a hobby so I, I really enjoy it and I said that's Perfect. You know, don't think you can hide. You don't need to hide it from me. You do it. Please don't do it behind my back. You know, um, you can be open about that. And he thought, wow, what a woman. I can, you know, I can do this in front of her. So I encouraged him to do it in front of me. And then I woke up a few weeks later in the middle of the night and he wasn't beside me. And I had a little old sort of cottage then and I came down the stairs and I looked into the lounge and he was gambling on a horse race in Australia and he had a laptop up because it wasn't on the iPhones then um he had a laptop up and I thought oh my god that looks like a, a betting terminal that I've seen down at Newmarket it's a tote and I was like oh my god he's gambling through the night and so I just was very silent and became a bit of a detective and thought I've got a I've got a there's a problem here, this isn't normal gambling. Um so I didn't challenge him about it. I just observed it really. Um because I didn't understand it and I couldn't I didn't Google. There was nothing like that then like there is now. And and obviously, then when I did try and speak to him about it, it was like this shutter just flew up. 
and it was you know like walls stay out of this stuff you know um so really that's it was very early on actually Robert very early on in the relationship and can I just was so Peter was still playing at this point no no and he and you often find with um gambling addicts um that they're high they can be very highly professional they're perfectionists and they you know because the money fuels the addiction so I liken it to heroin addiction because I've, I've worked around drug addiction and it's far more like drug addiction in my opinion than it is alcohol addiction um in the sense that the high and the buzz that I used to see him when he was gambling and he told me he had the high from the moment he started even if he lost in the end he said it wasn't even about the win or the loss it was about the and I think they can get such a high from the gambling that it's way up there with the the drug but the, the high is huge and I was watching that. I used to watch him, you know, when he was watching a horse race as well, and his whole body, his demure would be wrapped in it. And do you think, I mean, maybe it's hard for you to answer that que- this question, but, you know, playing professional football at the, the level that, that Peter played at, do you think the high of, you know, the gambling was similar to that high that he would get, say, of saving a penalty in the last minute in a, you know, a FA Cup final? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think going back to your story, your question before was, you know, that he could switch off and he, so he felt that the gambling was a way to release. And I think he gambled for 45 years, nearly 50 years. Um, and he was chronic, particularly towards the end. Um, and I think he thought, oh, it, this is my little space. I've got no public around. You know, this is where I can switch off and I enjoy doing it. And gambling gives you a self, a, a self sense of control and a, self, a, a false sense of comfort. It gives a lot of um, gamblers comfort. It's like my little world. I'm in control of this. And he was working in an industry which completely controlled him. Footballers are very, it has to be very regimental. They're told what to eat. They're told what time to get up. They're told what time to go to bed. They're told what they're doing during the day. It is all telling, telling, telling. It's so regimental, um, which they love. So I think a lot of footballers use gambling as an escapism. And it's and it's to them, they think it's this cosy uh, but it's not, it's evil, but it, it's this cosy feeling that they get. And this, then you've also got the added pressure of that high. And gambling can, I've seen it, can give addicts such a high. They get such a buzz. And that's what's so, so dangerous about the youth of today, because I hear lots of addicts over the years have told me, oh, I won you know, I won a thousand pound. You know, that's huge for a teenager, isn't it? What a buzz. What a buzz that would give. And I think that's how they get drawn into it. And the footballers, like Peter at the age of 15, was walking out in a stadium with 90,000 people screaming his name. I mean, you can't get much higher than that. You cannot get a buzz much higher than that. So what could that buzz be replaced with, particularly when he retired? 
Yeah. And do you think, obviously, if, if Peter's been gambling or was gambling for that length of time, he would have gone through, I guess, so many different types of gambling. I mean, JB uh, and, and yourself will be more of an expert than I am, but I imagine, you know, at the early days, it would have literally been going into the bookies. Um, and, you know, towards the end, presumably, as you mentioned, it was online gambling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it completely excelled when it went onto his phone. And he like so he is um, a brilliant historian on gambling, and you know sooner or later the UK will recognise that and and draw in on that. You know he started off, you know, with a telephone account with William Hill, Um, you know, so that's how he started off, where he would phone up and you know the little old man sitting in the lounge, wasn't it? He used to have the phone, he said, and you know he'd have an account. And he and also they would go into bookmakers. And back then, bookmakers, you know, the windows were completely sealed. I remember that as a child. You know, it was a taboo as a child. You gambling was kept well away from you. And this is this is a major part of the campaigning that Peter does. Um, whereas and then it developed into more and it was predominantly horse racing. So you will find with a gambling addict, there is one particular um gamble uh, gambling um sort of model that they will go to so whether it's football boxing peters was horse racing so predominantly they will you know you will work out that there'll be one thing that they do and then obviously when he got his phone that's when he got really i could see his well-being he was really ill it, it really went downhill once once he had one of these I mean, obviously, it's been quite publicly talked about the the idea of footballers betting on football, you know, on on matches, etc. Um, did Peter have any experience of seeing that or or hearing about that, you know, in the dressing room? He he's probably the most um, Gary Gary Lineker said it in um, in a documentary that was made a few years ago. He's probably the most disciplined, hardworking footballer in England history, and I believe that. And the commitment. I mean, I saw the David um, Beckham, uh, and he said, you know, no, no footballer loves football like I do, you know. And I, I absolutely slam that because, you know, that my husband is absolutely a hundred percent committed to his country and to England, and. Um, the level of commitment that he had, he's still got his two world records, he's still got his England record. And so he was very, he adored his career to the point he would never have allowed the gambling to step into that. So there was a level of strength within him, which obviously I drew on in the relationship. So the discipline, again, with a footballer should be, you know, no football's number one. You know, so in in our in our relationship, you know, there's football and then there's Steph, and I I love that and I respect that, but they run side by side. Yeah, that's I mean, this is fascinating and it's so interesting. I'm sure Jamie, I don't know if you want to come in at this point with anything, but um, just to get an insight, um, you know, into the the sort of the psyche and that professionalism, which I absolutely recognise. Um, Jamie, do you want to come in with any thoughts or, or, or questions for Steph so far? If we can kind of maybe go towards what do we think the responsibility of 
football clubs and maybe football as a whole should do upon uh, its relation to gambling companies. So um, what I'm going to mention here is that there just recently, maybe like in the last few days, there was a young ice hockey player who's been banned for 41 games because he uh, has been found to have a gambling addiction uh, with the hypocrisy that the gambling addiction that he had, the uh, company that he was with is advertised on his uh, jersey. Right. So he it's in it's in him. It's there. It's I mean, it's on his chest and everything like that. And if we kind of go and relate it to um, the EU regulations and I am going to speak more to Scotland, if you're a Celtic or a Rangers, which do have advertising located with on their kits, if you go over to EU and play a game against say PSG or, or, or anything along those lines, those have to be removed. Uh, and it then has like Rangers youth club and, and Celtic uh, support and everything like that. Yet when they do come back to Scotland, it's bet three, six, five. It's everything that's on there as well. Do you think that some responsibility of, or maybe even being within the football zeitgeist might've had some of that influence upon Peter and then even to talk further about that. Sure. I mean, obviously, this is where I'm incredibly proud of my husband. You know, he he had the guts to walk down Downing Street, bang on the door of number 10. He handed in a petition. Um, he he took so much um, from the gambling companies and, and the gamblers um, because he he fought to have the ban on on the um, football shirts and he he fought hard for that and it's gutting because we were at the uh, PFA Awards a few months ago and it's great you know they were showing a loads of modern day players on, on the screen um, of nominees and the front of the shirt is cleared from gambling companies and on every clip it on the side of the shirt which is a mockery of England's most capped male footballer and hit a legend and a statesman to me it was it was um you know because that's one thing that he he believes because he says it's a backdoor way into children and that that football it it really breaks his heart because nowadays he said to me it's not about the game and 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 which team is going to win it's about who the, the gambling throughout it and it and it really does upset him hugely. He wants gambling completely banned around the football pitch. He said it's not a place for it. Horse racing was always where you go to gamble, where you go and put a few quid on a horse, don't you? And millions of people gamble responsibly. And we're not anti-gambling by far. A lot of people really enjoy it. But he said the encroachment onto football and yes the football I mean the, the I think it's the um oh god here I go showing myself up now is it the PLF or the the ELF the football not the Premier League there's another league isn't there and they have just fought this and fought this they, and they they don't they don't accept any any um evidence that we've all provided the sort of dilemma that, that football clubs have um, is the money that gambling companies bring in. You know, it's how they replace that money. Um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you or Peter do have a, a view on this. I, I do genuinely think that most clubs, if they could replace the money that comes in, the income that comes in from sponsorship and advertising, they probably would remove, you know, more of the advertising um, sort of 
the obvious advertising, but it's how they balance that. That's the greed that's come into football, hasn't it? That's the problem. And um, I've I've spoken to clubs and, and I've been told that, um, say, if Adidas or, you know, a top brand puts a bid in, you know, because like Peter said, well, what on earth happened in the days when we ne- didn't have gambling companies around football? You know, we still survived then. So uh, someone like Adidas will put um, a huge bid in and a gambling company would just outbid every time, whatever the price they will outbid because they're making billions, aren't they? So they they will just outbid every time. So it boils down to greed. Yeah, absolutely. But how did Peter get to the point where you are today? I think with gambling addiction, as a loved one, you're on a journey. It's not a quick fix. And I tell all my clients that it's not a quick fix. You're on a journey. So you've got to try and break down that tower, that wall. So you have to become a detective. It is a game of cat and mouse, you know, because there is a huge amount of denial and secrecy and resistance from the, from the gambler. Um, and what I started to do was I thought, well, OK, I, I'm never, ever going to give him an ultimatum because I could see the mental pressure he was starting to live under. I could see this great man starting to really crumble. The gambling had seriously got to his health and his well-being. And I thought, if if I leave, he is going to... I thought he was going to kill himself. I thought he was getting... He was in the grasp of it so much. So what I did was I started gently plotting each day... Um, uncomfortable conversation so I would say oh like the losing post has arrived today how much have you lost today then you know but did it rather lightly it's got to be very light way that you're dropping it all in and he wanted to get married he'd proposed to me and I said yes and I said but the whole time I labeled it I called it the bookie and I said the whole time the bookie's in our relationship I can't do that because I want all of you And when I first met his father, his dad said to me, you do know he's got a problem with gambling. And I said, yes, I do. And I said, but I promise you I'm going to get him to quit. And I knew that I was going to beat that bookie. And and I've made that promise to his dad. And I think that's what pulled me along. And... So I kept, and he kept saying, I want to take you to Barbados, you know, when we get married. So I started plotting these dreams and I said, yeah, but we're not going to go. I'm not going on a credit card. If we go, if we go to Barbados, you know, I'm not taking the bookie with me. And he said, this all started to make him feel uncomfortable. And I kept saying to him, you have an illness. You're really poorly. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, you know, he was never there. And I started going in the lounge and saying to him, you're really ill this you know this is a condition it's not your fault and when you're ready I'm here you know we can do this and he said that started really plotting through um and then um I moved I'd had a really he'd had a terrible week and a, a really bad weekend and it was it was awful and I said to him I'm going to move into the spare bedroom and we had always had we always believed that you, as a couple, you should always share the same bed. You, you know, that we're both, that's something we were really, really both agreed on. And he, I, so I stayed in the spare bedroom. And when I got up in the morning, 
he said, I need to speak to you. And he looked terrible. I could see he hadn't slept all night. And he said to me, I um, I need to sort this out. I need to stop because I'm going to lose you and your next move is going to be out the front door and I can't lose you. So the gambling's got to go. And he's just like, and he said, will you help me? And I said, of course. And he said, you might have to give up your career because you're out of the home 70 hours a week, 50 to 70. And can you can you do that for me? And I don't know if I'm going to do it. And I said, of course I will. I'll do anything. And he just fell on me. Um, and it was like 45 years drained from him. And we fell on the sofa. And I said, we'll take one day at a time. And it was really hard. I thought, wow, happy ever after. We're going to run off into the sunset now. <laughs> and then that's when the withdrawals started. And that first week, he had no memory of it. He was, it was that bad. And I was like, oh, my God, this is full-blown addiction. He was waking up in the middle of the night with tremors, shaking, sweating. I was like, oh, my goodness. I was shocked. So did he go from... Um, from gambling as often as he was to literally doing nothing. So it was cold turkey. cold turkey, yeah. Cold turkey. And it took about three months for him to settle down. And I was incredibly patient with him through that. So I treated it clinically. I, I treated it as a, as a clinical. Um, and I knew then it was a mental health and it was a clinical con- condition. I'll say that to my dying day. I, 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 don't, hit, I don't agree with all a lot that's out there that sort of you know it's not an addiction I saw in my husband an addiction I saw full-blown withdrawal it took him three months to before he calmed down um he, he couldn't concentrate couldn't think straight would go out for a walk and he'd say I've got to go home and I'd be okay that's fine we'll go home he, he, you know it was all over the place particularly that first week it was so sad so sad what an amazing strength and, you know, it's a brilliant example of, you know, because obviously there were people listening to this podcast who, you know, might be in a similar position. One thing I always say to gamblers that that um, that are in trouble with the gambling, I always say it's not that the book is controlling that. And the reality of that is when it hits. So you haven't got control. The bookie has control. Mm-hmm. The bookie owns that that feeling and the bookie owns that you know that false that's why i always say it's a false sense of control mm-hmm. it's a false sense of comfort the bookie owns that as an affected other i'm wondering if you might be able to give maybe a slight bit of advice um you did talk about like cat and mouse being a bit of a detective but what about someone that is just that just a run-of-the-mill job maybe yeah i mean um one thing i've noticed with with um, gambling addiction is it completely suppresses the conscience which is what happens with drug addicts as well so they have no conscience and that's not their fault that's 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 you know they are a victim of gambling harm as much as we have to remember those us loved ones are also victims I was a victim of Peter's gambling harm I got hurt by that I got scarred by that um but it suppresses their conscience. So the one thing that I do say is, like, if you read my stories um, and our book, you'll see that I got his bank statement. It came through when he was in India. And I really wrestled with my conscience. I put it on the mantelpiece for three days. And I thought, that is going to give me all the answers. 
because he used to quickly burn his statements when they came through. And I thought, you know, this this is awful because this is, you know, it's one, it's illegal, really, isn't it? Opening someone else's post. And I knew that was going to tap right through to his tower, his tower wall. And I then I thought, do you know what? He has no conscience because there's the lies and the behaviour. Um, and I need to do this to protect him and get him away from the bookie because I want to beat the bookie as well. Um, and I opened it. So one of my advice to a lot of loved ones is you know, don't feel guilty about sneaking the phone out and having a look in it. Don't feel guilty because, um, you know, don't let that get to your conscience. So we do end up starting to behave like they do. When I talked about that game of cat and mouse, you know, that that's fine. And and really, with me, I had to find my own way with that, Jamie, because I had no experience of gambling. So I had to learn along my... And we did this together. You know, I because of the, his notability, I had no one to turn to. I had no one to talk to. I was completely alone. That's why I do the work I do. And that's why I do the public speaking I do. And that's why I try and bang on to the NHS and to Parliament and to the gambling commissioners. Hello, us loved ones. We we can be the antidote. I was my husband's antidote. I was the key to his successful recovery. You know, it was little old me that did that with no knowledge, no support, no 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 book to read, no references, nothing. And I did a recent study um, a few weeks ago, and I found that only 53 studies have ever been done globally on us. I hate the word affected others. It makes me feel like I've got an infection, but us loved ones. And and all those studies were concluding further further studies need, is needed. And if you look at the nice guidelines that have been written for affected others, I think there's about six or seven lines. And it, it is there's nothing in it. Um, so I think for us loved ones, it's about us understanding that we are just as much harm, harmed from gambling that's gone wrong from a loved one. But it's also remembering that the, the, the gambling addict is also a victim. And that's how I always looked at it with my husband, is that it's, this isn't his fault. This is awful. He deserves freedom from here. Um, and so for a loved one now, you can, you can reach out. You can reach out to me. You know, you can re- reach out. We can openly talk about it because it is an ugly subject and there is a stigma around it that you automatically think a gambler is someone, you know, that hasn't got a job, that goes into a bookmaker's and, you know, just, just hands all his, his, his money over. And it, it's not like that at all. It's gambling that's gone wrong in an individual and it's not their fault. And then it affects those around that, that love them. And, and we get very harmed by it. Don't be afraid to open those bank statements. Don't be afraid. But also, you have to do things rather silently and gently. You have to behave a bit like the gambler. You live in the gambling world, so you, you learn to be like that. And always protect yourself, because the first thing that I did was I had some savings. And, and then I said to Pete, I said, oh, I, I've lent that to a friend. And I haven't got my Barclay card anymore. Um, so I protect myself. 
And the idea of a joint bank account, when he mentioned that, I was like, oh. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, maybe when the, where, when the book is gone, we'll talk about it, you know. I think what's so refreshing is that, you know, we're talking about a really serious subject here and, and one that's clearly affected, you know, both of your lives. But it's the positive outlook and it's the, the sort of, you know, not lighthearted. That would that would be downplaying what you've been through. But the, you know, the sort of positive perspective on it that you've taken which I think is is so refreshing I think it actually it leads us on to a really I think important question which is to let you speak about the work that you and Peter are doing just now thank you so much um yes so what happened was I gave my career up I didn't think twice about that to help you know this this wonderful man um come through because it, it did take about I'd say after about a year I felt that it was completely cleansed after about three months the the withdrawal symptoms diminished um, which is what I love about Gordon Moody's approach because all I know is that the the loved ones I've helped get their 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 loved ones through it have all said exactly the same it, it's about three months before it settled down um, so and then after about um, year four, I think it was, we started reading about these suicides in football, young footballers as a result of gambling. And I said to Pete, oh, my God, you know, we need to, you need to talk about this. You know, you could save lives. This is terrible. So he spoke with Charles Ritchie at Gambling With Lives and he came off the phone. and He was like, I've got to do something. You're right. I have got to do something. There's at least one suicide a day in the UK and he felt terrible shame about his gambling and that always bothered me because I was like no you should feel proud you were a victim it's not your fault you know and in the past he had had people verbally around him that had verbally blackmailed him and said you know well I'll go to the press and tell them that you're a gambler and he'd lived with all of that and I hated that as well that people that were, you know, around him in his life had that sort of threat over him. And I hated that. And so I said to him, look, come out and tell your story. It's out there. You'll be a huge inspiration because nearly 50 years of gambling, and you can do it, anyone can do it. And he said, I'm not doing it unless you're there with me, holding my hand and telling your story because you are key to my story. We go together. It's a Mr. and Mrs. I was like, oh, my God, I, I'm private. I like being in the background. He does a great job out there. And I'm, you know, I like being, I'm quite happy here. So off we go to Good Morning Britain. Pierce Morgan as well. And I said to the producer, can you ask them not to ask how much money is lost? You know, let's go go a bit steady. It's the first time he's ever spoke about his gambling to anyone and he's going public first question Pierce Morgan said so Peter Shilton how much did you lose <laughs> so we did the interview and we thought we did an exclusive with the Daily Mail because as you can imagine all the nationals wanted it we donated all the money to the all the fees went to gambling with lives um, and we thought yeah great we've done it it's out there now came back home went to bed and then in the morning I got up and all of a sudden my phone was exploding. I had alcoholics, I had gamblers messaging on Facebook, all on social media, 
I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up alcohol. Um, my wife's going to do this. My partner's going to do that. And I, I was like, oh, my God. And there was hundreds coming in. And then before we know it, that was it. We hit this new road and we've done nearly 150 interviews. And I said at the Bristol Hub University's guest speaker the other week, I made a tribute for the first time to my husband. And I said, he never says no. He ne- he does it all in his free time. He does it all voluntary. We know that our story has inspired lives. It's changed lives. And we do know it's saved some lives because we've had the addicts tell us. We did this morning with Holly. Um, and um, when I went off into the green room, I had a message on WhatsApp come through from a young Asian guy. And he said... I'd got the pills on the table and I was ready to end it all. And all of a sudden I heard someone mention gambling and I looked up and your husband was on there and I phoned my mum and we hadn't even got out of the studio. And I said, oh my God, this is what you're doing. You're saving lives. And then we wrote a book in the lockdown and that was the first time we had actually really gone over our past properly and when we finished writing it I absolutely broke down and went oh my god we're such a special couple did we really go through that I talked about the miscarriage I wrote my story and he wrote his and there was things I didn't know that he was getting up and throwing up in the morning I didn't know how he you know how how horrendous it was for him I could see it but I didn't know really to understand that side of it and he didn't know my heartache and what I, the cat and mouse game and all what I was trying to do to pull him out. And um, and then I said to him, I, I would like my career back and I do want it looking after loved ones. And so the position came up and I went for it with Gordon Moody. Um, we're patrons of football study. We've done the, the, a lot of work with the white paper. We wrote a paper in that. And I'm absolutely loving my job with Gordon Moody because I believe in their treatment because it's really what I applied to with my husband. And I know that us silent victims, there's still so much that we need. And I found a charity that understands that. They get that. They get that, you know, as a loved one, we have to go through, you know, it took me a long time to recover and build my trust up and stop worrying that he might gamble again. Three years on, I remember one Christmas morning, I went outside and I came in the kitchen and it was deadly silent in the lounge and it was like a trigger went off in me. I felt sick, my stomach churned and I was like, is he gambling? Is he watching a horse race? It's a long recovery for both. The financial recovery can take years. The trust can take such a long time. And you're on your own as a loved one. There's no support out there. There's no real one-to-one support out there. And, and that's, that's quite sad because the gambler's got more chance of not relaxing if they have that support network at home. I think what's most striking for me is that, you know, when we think about what we call these podcasts, um, I think we kind of had in our head possibly call them this, you know, Peter's story. But I think what is absolutely crystal clear to me, and I'm sure Jamie will agree, is that this is not Peter's story. It's Peter and Steph's story because you're 
role in this is as pivotal um, as, you know, as Peter. And, you know, I, I think for me, it's just such a powerful story about love and working together um, and not giving up on somebody. It, you know, it was so difficult because when you're living with the gambler, you're living the gambler's life. So you've got the ups and downs. I knew when he'd got money. I knew I dreaded the end of the month when he's, you know, when he didn't have the money. I knew when he had the losses because you're on that emotional um, roller coaster with them. So you're living that life. Um, but I always had in the back of my mind that I'd promised his dad. And six weeks after Pete quit, his father fell ill had a stroke and we went up to the hospital and he'd only got a few hours to live and Pete was one side of him and I was the other and we were holding his hands and I managed to tell him just before he died that I'd got him to quit and so I think that's what really spurred me on is that commitment as hard as it was at times as much as at times I thought I can't do this I'm not getting anywhere. I know he's never going to quit. How am I going to do this? And that loneliness of being cocooned in it. But it always boiled down to the fact I knew he was a great man and he didn't deserve it. And he deserved to have, um, uh, you know, mental freeness from it and have that peace of mind. And that's my biggest reward is when all the family are here and I look across and he's having a beer with my son-in-law and they're watching the football as, as always and he'll just smile at me and I can see that peace of mind and him enjoying life and that's the greatest reward for me and the, and the fact that I fulfilled that promise is what pushed me along. In the second part of this episode, Jamie and I are joined by Stephen Jardin from Street League, an organisation who look to support young people through a variety of social issues, including gambling, through the vehicle of sport. Stephen tells us about how the partnership between Fast Forward and Street League has grown and how this partnership is already beginning to have an impact. Hi Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, I hope you're both doing well, thank you for having me. No, not at all. We're delighted to to have you on this part of the podcast. And hi, Jamie. Afternoon, Robert. Well, thanks for both for, for joining us for this this panel part of the podcast. Um, and really, Stephen, this part is really about you and the the work that you do. And I think it would be really good if you could maybe just start by telling us about the the street league, and then we can maybe tease out some of the other parts from that. Of course. Uh, so street league is a a youth or youth unemployment organisation who uh, work with predominantly young people aged sixteen to twenty four right across the UK, and our our whole angle of engagement is that we use sport to to get young people on board and interested, uh, where we can sort of build on the team building skills and the elements and the fun aspect of sport, and then all these things that transfer into the world of work. So we deliver it in a sort of program style where we get groups of young people together. Uh, work through some qualifications, be that maths and English or some SQA units, uh, with the ultimate aim of trying to get people into employment. And is this across the whole of Scotland or is it sort of based in uh, in certain cities or certain locations? We have six, uh, six regional areas or regions across Scotland that we work in, from Ayrshire to the west of Scotland. We've got Glasgow, 
We've got a central hub in the Lanarkshire's area, uh, east, which covers Edinburgh and, and the Lothians, and then right up to Tayside. Uh, but as an organisation, we actually cover the whole of the UK, so we've also got six areas down down in England also as well. I see. And all covering the same sort of theme, which is using sport as a kind of vehicle for getting um, you know kids involved in, um, I suppose, improving their future. Absolutely, yeah. What we find is that the common... The common young person that we engage with is is somebody who who enjoyed PE at school, uh, maybe not so much else. Didn't particularly attain particularly high qualifications, whether that was through personal circumstances or maybe not the most academic in the world. But we know that they all enjoyed sport in that aspect. So if we can get them all together and create that environment, we know that we can then start talking about the employability side of the world and personal development and things like that but that sport is the basis for everything that's fantastic yeah what a great initiative to hear about um and i suppose thinking about the particular theme for this podcast um how did street league get involved in gambling harm and i suppose why is the partnership between fast forward and street league so important so it all came about when uh, we started we were doing initial assessments with young people so when we first meet them finding out about their background where they live where they come from what bus route do they need to follow to get to our venue so we get to know a bit more about young people you start finding like common themes so when we have a group of 16 young people you might find that maybe diet and nutrition isn't particularly amazing so that's one theme we'll cover or if young people are in receipt of a training allowance as part of the program we need to talk about financial budgeting and, and management and things like that but one thing that started coming out becoming more and more prevalent was people talking about gambling whether that was through gaming or the Saturday afternoon coupon that you put on for the football, like these sort of things. So we had a bit of a sort of moral responsibility to start talking about what are the dangers and where could this potentially lead? Now, at that time, which was about four or five years ago, we were just doing that through a common sense approach. We didn't know the background. We weren't educated in it. We weren't the specialists. So we started tapping into local relationships uh, with Fast Forward and, and people that we've met at provider forums and networking events and invited them along to our academy programme to say, can you spare a morning to talk through gambling awareness with young people? And it's sort of grown arms and legs from there, where we've now got staff who are undergoing train-the-trainer sessions with Fast Forward, which is allowing us to then widen our reach. We can then reach more young people, everyone that comes into a street league service, we can have this conversation with rather than relying on the availability of, of one individual from a, an external organisation. You know, and thinking about the, the young people that you, you're working with, how open were uh, many of them around the sort of gambling? Was that something that, you know, became, that they quite, quite willingly volunteered that information or was it more that you became aware of it through, you know, other sources? So there's a right mix. There's some people that are quite openly chatting about uh, the Saturday afternoon stuff or you come in on a, a Wednesday morning and somebody's let you down in the Champions League for £500 and like all that sort of stuff. I always find that quite funny how somebody lets you down for that amount of money. It's like, well, they didn't let you down for one and it was probably for £2. It wasn't for 500 That's just what it could have been. Uh, so uh, that and one of the qualifications that we deliver uh, is a well-being focus. So we're talking about young people's individual needs and the communities that they live in. Uh, and what they get up to on a week to base a week to week basis and things like that and that's where things start coming out about 
well, my sleeping pattern's not amazing. Well, why is it not amazing? Well, it's because I do quite a lot of gaming. So what games do you play? And then it starts like coming out from there. Eh, and people coming in celebrating that they got Messi in a pack on FIFA last night. And it's like, well, that costs money. Where does that money come from? And that's how it how it sort of became came live to us. And like I said earlier, we, we, we were just taking a common sense approach around do you know what the dangers could be and things like we just didn't have the specialist knowledge. You know, it's interesting, the gaming um, sort of theme, because, you know, I've done a bit of work around this myself. And do you think young people actually make that connection between um, what we would consider, you know, introduction to, to gambling harms in gaming? Or do you think they just see it as part of the game? I think it's very much part of the game. Uh, I think having done these sessions and, like sat in on on some of them previously with fast forward it's not until it's actually broken down and, and made quite clear what that is that you can see penny drops you actually see like oh people now realize what it is they're doing but very much so i think young people just consider that to be part of the game in the same way that they're probably blind to the fact that all the adverts on that match that you're watching on the telly are around gambling or the big sponsor that's emblazoned across the front of the shirt is gambling. I don't think that's something that's, that's necessarily visible to young people. Jamie, do you want to come in on any of this? I think it's just, it's exactly what Stephen's saying as well is that, because obviously when we do go in to talk to some of these groups, I, we do say 24, but I would say the majority of people that I would have worked with would be more within like the 16 to 19 year range. Obviously there are some some exceptions and stuff like that. And it's exactly what Stephen is saying is that that combination of, well, do you know what? Like I don't go into a bet shop. I don't, um, I may necessarily maybe don't even know what a football coupon is. And it is when you start to explain it a little bit, start to make those connections with it and everything like that, that then they start to open their eyes a little bit more. Another big thing that we say, and, and Stephen's heard me say this many times as well as you, Robert, but we talk about affected others quite a bit as well. Um, we li obviously listened to Steph Shilton as an affected other, even though she didn't like that term, she understood the importance of putting that forth. And I find a big thing as well is that we see a lot of the young people that I work with, and I'm sure Stephen can attest this as well, that it's um, also within, um, it may be their connection to their parent, maybe a connection to a grandparent, it may be an older brother or sister, that it's that football combination and that they've put gambling and football and support and love and family into that big mixing pot and what we like to do especially with our work with street league is that we like to kind of point out that you can have these things maybe not so much with this thing and that maybe that we do also have to look at the mental health of it as well and everything like that and it's been absolutely engaging the other big thing that i do like to mention and this is a big shout out to street league is exactly what steven was saying was that their practitioners and their supportive workers are fully on board with what we are talking about. Even if we do kind of tightrope a fine line between football and gambling and gambling supporters and sponsors, they are still fully aware that it is for the well-being of that young person and they're fully engaged for it. I actually have training with new staff that are coming in and Street League constantly keeps doing it. So it is, it's a lovely connection that we have and it's a lovely relationship that we definitely keep cultivating. Can you think about the impact or the difference it's made either to staff or to some of the um, the young people that you've been working with? I think in, t in terms of young the young people that we work with, eh, like they're walking away from that session with their eyes opened and they now understand what the impact potentially could be or eh, a, bit, a bit more of just assurance on what the subject is and what the topic is, which is great. Eh, it sparks a bit of debate 
Uh, some people disagree with what the they see that as a bit doom mongering or scaremongering or something like that. Like that's not that doesn't affect me. Like that sort of approach, which is absolutely fair. Sparking debate then also leads us into the sort of personal development side of the program because you're now doing a bit of public speaking and you're now got the confidence and assurance and like so it it ticks so many boxes and that's such a sometimes a loaded term to use and it sometimes disrespects things by using the term ticking boxes but it does it, it meets so much criteria it's great uh, from a staff point of view we're probably opening their eyes as well there's a lot of staff that might be well within the rights to do what they want to do at the weekends with regards to, to gambling and, and things like that but they've probably had their eyes opened Maybe they don't want to accept that that's, that's the case, but they probably have. Uh, it's added so much value to our programme because we can now talk about what is such a relevant and hot topic uh, confidently and know that we've got the right, we're saying the right things and uh, we've got the expertise to do that now. So much so that, uh, well, I mean, Jamie just touched on it there, but we've actually got another session booked in for mid-December for brand new staff that have just joined Street League to make sure. So we value this so high that it's now part of CPD that when you come to Street League, you need to be uh, upskilled and trained on these topics so that when you're working with young people, you can actually provide the right information. That's fantastic. And I think, you know, the purpose of this conversation was to really talk about the partnership. And it sounds like from both of you that it's a two-way partnership that, uh, fast forward are getting lots out of working with you know your expertise but but vice versa and you know, I love the fact that it's now built into your sort of staff development program it's just an important part of it I suppose the the you know the final question I guess would be around what's next for Street League in terms of the gambling harm part is there a kind of aspirational next step or is it just to build on what you've done already is there anything particularly in the horizon that you think would be a really good move forward uh, I mean first and foremost we would want to continue doing what we're doing and maintaining uh, the relationship and that goes with when we get new staff ensure that they get the training uh, there's probably something in including our HR department uh, is there an accredited qualification that our staff could get around gambling awareness gambling uh, like harm reduction and things like that so that we could potentially make our programs even stronger, even more attractive to the, the funding world and the commissioning world, eh, and also ultimately just further equip our staff and make them better and more rounded eh, practitioners going forward. That would be like the two most obvious things for me about what would, what would be next. Eh, but the, the absolute most important thing is, is we are very much living and breathing this partnership. It's something that we use on every programme across Scotland, which right now stands at six regions, which potentially could be more, but within those six regions, we've got around about 20-odd delivery teams, so each of them delivering four programmes a year. It's such a massive reach that we are talking about gambling harm reduction with young people. And, and Jamie, from your point of view, I suppose, to reciprocate, what do you see next as the sort of partnership with um, Street League? So I think, I mean, the basis of and I'm and sorry to keep it simplistic, Stephen and Robert, but I think it's just continued work together. Um, I think what we, and this is something that I wanted to touch on what Stephen was saying as well, is that we do tend to get... Um, a, a few of the people when we do this session who exactly what Stephen was saying will be backs up against the wall and be like, well, I gamble and I've never had any issue with it and everything like that. And I think what the important thing that we and Street League do is that we go with a holistic approach 
we allow them to have a voice. We allow them in this in this group and in these sessions to speak their own mind, um, to maybe let down the defenses that they've had to build up because they do sometimes come from tougher neighborhoods than what I was used to. And it's just really nice to have an adult in the room, uh, uh, a loved and respected other that will give them that attention, that will allow them to have that safe space to be able to express themselves. And so that even if we are approaching and talking to them about gaming, gambling harm, that we also know that with Street League, that they'll have our back, we have theirs, with the whole holistic being that we want that young person to be around for a very long time, that we want them to be the best person that they can be, um, that there may be some hurdles that they approach, but what we can do to be able to help them is how to not only jump over those hurdles, but not have to reach them in the near future. And I think that's the combination that we do and that we do well with Street League. And it's fully on. Anytime that they have new employees that come in, they offer and they approach us to be able to do another session. Whenever we have young people in, they're always engaging. Um, they're always enthusiastic. They love to offer their opinions. Um, and we love taking them and we love hearing them. And I think that's even just having that holistic, full-on approach for it looking after those young people and their well-being. I think that's continued support and work with Street League and Fast Forward that will be happening 